Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There was a report late yesterday in the Wall Street Journal talking about how J.P. Morgan, which operates the main benchmark that is uh, used to invest in emerging markets debt, the J.P. Morgan may be forced to remove Venezuelan debt from its benchmark index as a result of U.S. sanctions, uh, details of which are expected to be announced uh, today. They may have already been announced. I want to check that because it was supposed to come at 11. I want to bring in Shamila Khan. She is director of emerging market debt at Alliance Bernstein in New York. And uh, Shamila, I want to start by talking about the market response to some of the rumors. I have been very surprised to see no market response. And I would think that there would be a massive further decline in Venezuela bonds should there be a removal of this uh, this particular type of debt from benchmark indexes. What's going on here? So what's going on really is a lot of uncertainty in terms of what kind of sanctions are going to be announced. Uh, to the extent that the uh, U.S. Treasury sticks to the kind of sanctions they employed at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and only limit the sanctions to newly issued debt in the future of uh, Venezuelan entities, then the impact on the index is going to be fairly negligible, which is why you're not saying, uh, seeing a tremendous uh, price response um, in the bonds. Uh, in addition, there have been some humor, rumors in the last day or so of um, you know, Chinese involvement in uh, um, helping the Venezuelan government make its near-term payments, um, which are being negotiated in China by Venezuelan officials that have been further supportive of prices. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I just want to bring you some headlines related to this. So President Trump has just, as we were uh, introducing you, <laughs> Trump uh, signed an executive order on new Venezuela sanctions that include uh, some... Uh, a ban in dealing in new debt and equity from the state-run oil company, which is uh, trades under the ticker PDVSA, as well as uh, Venezuela government-issued debt and equity. Um, we had been hearing that this could be potentially nuanced so that it wouldn't necessarily affect uh, people in the U.S. trading existing bonds between each other. But uh, we still need to parse through the details and we'll bring them to you when we get them. But Shamila, uh, what about from your perspective? Does Alliance Bernstein own uh, Venezuelan debt? Have you been selling your uh, holdings of it? And uh, where do you expect to go from here with those holdings? So Alliance Bernstein manages a number of funds that are benchmarked to emerging market sovereign indices that include Venezuela debt. As such, we are holders of Venezuela debt. But our stance in Venezuela has been very defensive uh, for some time. And um, the way we think about Venezuela is really take a very strong fundamental stance uh, with respect to this country's um, future, with respect to ability to pay back its debt. Um, there is no real reason Venezuela should be in the economic situation it is in right now. Uh, it has a lot of resources. 
And uh, it, it definitely does not appear to us a solvency issue, but rather a liquidity issue. And the fact that the country does not have a credible regime and has not been able to attract investment into the country. We do not see the current situation as a sustainable situation. We do believe that there will be a change in the future, which will lead to a better economic situation in Venezuela. And when we are putting together our exposures, we keep this fundamental view in mind, because our investments are always uh, uh, forward-looking as far as fundamentals are concerned. Well, Shamila, I just want to give you the opportunity. I mean, if you're talking about the country's ability to repay its debt or potential uh, ability, what about the, the potential ability of the country to restructure itself? I mean, that doesn't look like it's going to happen, at least internally. And uh, have you had any pushback from investors who say, you know what, we really don't want our money being uh, lent to uh, any entity that is supported by such a repressive regime? That's absolutely true. And that is uh, something that we don't think is sustainable. We do not believe that the repressive regime is a sustainable regime in the near future uh, and in the medium term. Uh, As a result of which, we believe that there will be a change to a more credible regime, which will be able to put together policies. um, And that is what we are looking for in order to be less defensive in our positioning in Venezuela. The other thing to keep in mind is that prices are already at very depressed levels. They are at all-time lows for many of the bonds, and they are trading below what has been historically the recovery rates on emerging market sovereigns. So to a great extent, this country is already pricing in a restructuring of its external debt. Uh, Shamila, uh, so given the fact that we are getting now uh, new sanctions by the U.S. on Venezuela debt and equity, do you have any sense of how this could affect your day-to-day? Does this change anything about the way you approach investing in Venezuela? Well, we were expecting sanctions from the United States. So this is something that we have taken into consideration when constructing our own portfolios. Uh, And uh, at this point, as uh, (laughs) we are really seeing the headlines come out uh, as we speak, uh, from what I can understand, uh, based on what I'm reading right now, it is a ban on dealing in new debt, which is debt which will be issued in the future, which should not uh, impact any of their existing debt. There are some headlines about certain bonds uh, possibly getting impacted. It's unclear to me which bonds those are. Uh, but what we have tried to do is limit our uh, holdings to uh, the Venezuelan bonds, which we believe will not be controversial with respect to payments and are generally accepted by the opposition as legal debt. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Shamila Khan is the director of emerging market debt for Alliance Bernstein. And once again, uh, President Donald Trump has uh, signed an order that imposes new U.S. sanctions on Venezuelan debt. This is new debt from the government as well as from the state oil company, PDVSA. Well, how about ordering your dinner from Amazon? It doesn't seem too far of an idea. And indeed, with the purchase of Whole Foods, it seems like something is going to happen at least next week in terms of prices. Here to tell us more about the effect on the grocery store industry is Shira Ovide, our technology columnist, our Bloomberg gadfly. She follows all of this technology for our fast commentary section of Bloomberg. And you can follow her on Twitter at Shira Ovide. And also with us, we have Sarah Halzak, our retail columnist for Bloomberg gadfly. It's all coming together. And you can follow uh, Sarah at on Twitter at Sarah Halzak. Um, you know, Sarah, maybe we should just start with you as, uh, as someone that's following retail. What effect do you believe the, uh, the move by Amazon to acquire Whole Foods, what do you think it will make 
the other grocery stores do? Because they're not going to just sit back and wait for someone else to take their market share away. That's exactly right. And I think what it's going to do is really put pressure on them to squeeze every bit of pricing they can out of what they're offering to customers. You know, Whole Foods for a long time now has had this reputation as whole paycheck. They really haven't been competitive on a price front. And so as the consumer gets more health minded and they want these organics, there's been a lot of room for other grocers to take share there. Kroger, Walmart, Aldi, Lidl, they're offering these kinds of products at better prices. Now that Amazon is going to make Whole foods get serious about being competitive in that way, it really throws down the gauntlet to the rest of the sector. Shira, I want to bring you in here from the Amazon perspective. It's not that novel of an idea. If you cut prices, people will be more interested in something, right? And this has sort of been its business model. Uh, But I imagine that there are reasons that Whole Foods didn't have lower prices to begin with. In other words, that cuts into their margins and their profit margins. I mean, where is the long-term goal here for Amazon and how profitable is this model? It's a fair question. I mean, it's it's worth noting that uh, even a, a grocer like Whole Foods, albeit a, an expensive grocer like Whole Foods, has significantly better operating margins than Amazon, right? You're talking 5% in the last quarter for Whole Foods, 5% operating margins, and 2% operating margins for Amazon. So it's weird when you acquire a grocer and you're buying a higher margin business than uh, what you already have. But look, you saw what Amazon did right away, which is really, it just shows their ruthless genius, which is they set out on day one to change the perception of Whole Foods as this expensive place to buy fancy groceries that, you know, they use the word savings and, you know, organic foods for everyone uh, several times in their news announcement yesterday. And it's really about changing the perception and getting more people in the door and starting to steal that market share from other grocers. Well, you know, these uh, th- this idea that there's going to be, let's say, a membership program that would morph from Amazon Prime over to, let's say, a point of sale system at Whole Foods. I- is that something, uh, Shira, that you believe is just going to, you know, normally going to happen? I mean, they indicate, I will say it's unclear exactly how that's going to work, right? Amazon said yesterday that they're going to essentially make Amazon Prime, their existing $100 a year shopping club, into the sort of loyalty card program for Whole Foods. And we didn't get a lot of details, but you can sort of imagine that Amazon will try to make it uh, worth Prime members' time to shop at Whole Foods and not at other places. And that's a clever idea. Well, and just to follow up, the idea about point of sale is that maybe you will in a, be in a situation in which you will not have to actually give your credit card or your uh, cash in order to make a, transa- a purchase at Whole Foods because you're a Prime customer, you're logged in, you're done. It goes into your Amazon account. Maybe. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. We'll, we'll see exactly how they integrate the sort of cash register system with Prime, but you can sort of imagine where you go to checkout if you're a Prime member, you get a better discount on those bananas or that jar of peanut butter than you would if you're not a Prime member. And again, it means that if you're a Prime member, and a lot, tens of millions of Americans are, that gives you an extra incentive to shop at Whole Foods and not at the Kroger or whatever down the street. And I just want to point out that Amazon shares have actually been down for a, a third consecutive day. So even though, yes, Kroger shares and other grocery store shares have gone down, although Kroger is bouncing back a little bit today, uh, you know, Amazon's down too with the question of profit margins. Uh, but Sarah, I want to bring you back in here. Amazon won in the retail war or is winning because not just on 
lowering prices, they also uh, found a way to distribute goods efficiently and quickly, as well as often cheap, more cheaply, but not always. Um, I want to give you a, a, a chance to sort of argue the case for why this may not work in the grocery industry. In other words, does Amazon have to compete on a level that goes beyond just lowering prices? And what is the barrier to entry there? Yeah, so put simply, a perishable supply chain is just a whole different ballgame than the kind of supply chain that Amazon has built already for selling us laundry detergent and selling us sweaters and all that kind of stuff, right? So someone in the grocery business once told me, for example, when you're thinking about grocery delivery, you have to consider things like that when bananas ripen, they emit something that makes apples ripen at a different pace than if they were not next to that banana, right? This is supply chain know-how that the Walmarts and the uh, Trader Joe's and Kroger's of the world have been building for a really long time that Amazon simply doesn't have. And so Whole Foods certainly has some of that know-how, but it'll be interesting to see how Amazon is able to kind of leverage that uh, and expand it more widely. Sarah, there's, oh, I beg your pardon. No, no sure. I was just going to say that, I mean, Sarah makes a good point, which is that Amazon has been in the grocery business for 10 years. So they've had Amazon Fresh, which is their grocery delivery service, up and running, starting in Seattle and and in, in other markets now, too, um, for 10 years. And it really hasn't made much of a dent in the grocery industry. And that points to some of the issues that Sarah pointed out, that they haven't necessarily figured out the sort of logistical dynamics of uh, the grocery business quite yet. The, you know, they're smart people. They can figure it out. But, you know, 10 years of experience has shown that they haven't necessarily cracked it yet. Well, I, and, I, and to your point, I just want to put, apply that to Whole Foods because, you know, Sarah, uh, it looks as though, what, 65% of the sales are perishable foods at uh, Whole Foods, right? Non-perishable items. They fare pretty poorly at Whole Foods. They do. And I think that that sort of gets to this idea that, you know, people are willing to spend a little bit more for the things they're putting inside their bodies, for feeling like they're having grass fed beef and, you know, uh, chicken that's not uh, treated with antibiotics. They're willing to plunk down more money for those kinds of things. But man, for toilet paper, they're just not willing to pay a premium. And so uh, that's that's one challenging thing they'll have to contend with. You know, I think it's really interesting to note that back in 2009, when Whole Foods had only 273 stores. Stores. Uh, some research from Cantor Retail shows that 7% of shoppers said during that time period they visited Whole Foods on a monthly basis. Now they have over 400 stores. The share of shoppers that visit them on a monthly basis is virtually unchanged. Wow. So they're really having trouble growing the base of customers who are interested in their product. And I think that that uh, package dry goods uh, price issue is a big one. Thank you so much for joining us. Great insight. Sarah Halzak and Shira Ovide, both Gadfly columnists. They jo uh, jointly wrote a column on this issue uh, that's fabulous. Check it out. Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. Also on the Bloomberg at NI space Gadfly. The National Hurricane Center says that the storm, Hurricane Harvey, has maximum sustained winds of 110 miles per hour. That is just below the Category 3 level for a storm. Forecasters say the storm is expected to reach that mark before making landfall late today and early Saturday in Texas. And here to tell us more about this is Shanandu Basu. He is a meteorologist and gas analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and he joins us here in our studio. Shanandu, thanks for 
very much for being with us. Uh, maybe just give everyone a, a detailed over, you know, view of what, what we can expect over the next, let's say, 24, 48 hours. Hey, Pim. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. So, of course, we know that right now Hurricane Harvey is going to be strengthening up to a Category 3. But what's unusual about the storm really is how quickly it has intensified. It's intensified so rapidly over the last 48 hours. Um, as of this morning, the central pressure down to about 970 millibars. And of course, those wind speeds making it up there to about 110. And the other big piece of this is the duration and the amount of rain that we're going to be getting. Um, we're looking at up to 30 or even over 30 inches of rain in parts of the coastal part of Texas as a result of the storm and the trajectory it's expected to take. I mean, even as late as next Monday or Tuesday, that storm, uh, Hurricane Harvey, just still kind of hovering over um, the central and eastern part of uh, coastal Texas there. Yeah. Yeah. People have talked about how it's going to stall out over Texas and it's yeah. going to be stalling out over populated areas of the state. Uh, what have the evacuation orders been like and what is the expected damage supposed to be? Yeah. I mean, the damage, of course, is a big part of this. Certainly to coastal uh, oil and gas infrastructure, we've already been seeing offshore platforms being evacuated, all, you know, all the major oil companies and other smaller ENPs as well evacuating their their oil platforms. And um, as far as, uh, you know, the gas gas infrastructure is a little bit different, though, because, you know, we haven't seen that much of a price movement yet in gas. And that's because, you know, ever since, um, you know, 2008 with Gustav and Ike, you know, a lot of that infrastructure has been beefed up. And also the gas production environment has changed substantially with a lot of that production shifting over to the northeast. So uh, as a result, you know, we're not going to be seeing a whole lot of movement in the gas markets from the supply side. Now, going back to your point about the effects, demand is really the big story here with um, effects, of course, to the power markets with multiple you know, power outages and that kind of thing, flooding impacting a lot of the power assets down there and also the wind farms with the high winds that are expected. Tell us about yeah. how the demand will go down, number one, because it's going to be a weekend. And also you have the situation where it's just going to be less use of electricity. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, with people evacuating the area and, of course, also industries shutting down, you know, a lot of the plants and, and factories and so on and so forth in that area shutting down. You know, we're expecting uh, just industrial demand alone to account for about two to 300 mmcf of gas per day. Um, so that, that piece of it shutting down. Also, we have a major nuclear plant, South Texas Nuclear, that is probably going to be shutting down maybe today or early tomorrow. Um, and that going offline accounts for about two gigawatts of power right there. So, you know, and in the aftermath of the storm, you know, gas generation will have to fill in for that missing nuclear piece right there. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking about this right before the segment when we were talking about how gasoline prices have increased. That's probably where you've seen the biggest uh, effect of this impending hurricane with prices at one point rising to the highest uh, levels since November. Yet this will not translate to higher prices that people end up paying at the gas station simply because of the production. You 
sort of uh, touched on this, but can you give us a sense of how much uh, production has moved away, frankly, from this region in Texas and more up north to, say, North Dakota and the shale production? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I think there are a couple of pieces to that. So the first is, of course, with the number of refineries that have gone down just today. I think we're just in just around the 800 mark that has gone offline, which is certainly higher than what you would see on a, you know, on a day-to-day kind of basis. So that's what's uh, taking a shot at the supply side of gasoline. That's why we're seeing a rise in the price there. As far as natural gas, however, um, because now we're seeing so much more production in, in, in the Marcellus regions up in Pennsylvania and, and, you know, the Northeast in general, Gulf production has declined significantly over the last, uh, you know, five to eight years. And so, that area, that region as a, you know, production region, the importance of that has, has gone down. Real quick, when was the last time that we saw a storm of this magnitude actually hit landfall in the U.S.? Um, in the U.S. in Texas, 2008 was, yeah, that was the last time we had uh, Hurricane Ike. And was this, is this going to be more or, or is this going to be weaker or stronger than Ike? Do you uh, it's going to be about the same or a little bit stronger. Yeah, especially... Um, with the precipitation and the rain, yeah. Uh, definitely uh, important to watch. And anyone who's listening who is in that area, please be safe. I am very concerned. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of rain and a lot of flooding and certainly very messy at the best and uh, and potentially uh, life-threatening at worst. Shenando Basu, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. He's meteorologist and gas analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance talking about Hurricane Harvey. noticed over the past hmm, couple of months, we've been talking a lot about range-bound markets, sleepy markets, lack of volatility, lack of volumes, lack of impetus to sell, but bullish. And here to explain whether we're going to see anything that's going to break us out of this one way or another is David Ader. He's chief macro strategist at Informa Financial Intelligence. He is also a writer for our Bloomberg Profits uh, section that's part of Bloomberg View. And he also was the number one ranked U.S. government bond strategist by Institutional Investor Magazine for 10 years. David, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I'd love to get your sense. Right now, we are seeing uh, Treasury yields dip lower yet again, even as we see uh, markets rally, uh, stock markets rally. I'm looking at a, a 10-year Treasury yield uh, that is lower than 2.2%. Where do you think we're headed with this Treasury yield by the end of this year? <laughs> Oh, I I think that there's a great chance we'll see 211. How's that? For, that's that's for, just I, a dramatic call. I'm blown it, away. Isn't it? Isn't <laughs> it? I mean, for the balance of the year, you know, I mean, I would like to think um, that we will get a little more activity other than these sort of six basis point weekly ranges. And if I, you know, with a bit of a bias, I think that, you know, we are going to face, I hate to say this term, uncertainties going into the end of the year as we get around the debt ceiling, as we get around the possibility, the likelihood of a new Fed chairman. And I think we're going to continue with low inflation. So I think that there's a risk that we could actually um, take tens a little bit below 2%. Uh, but I would not get overly excited. I do not think the, the, there's going to be a big directional play 
in in yields for for the balance of this year and and uh, you know very possibly into next year, which raises a whole new set of questions. Well, we've been getting a lot of warnings. I guess whenever uh, things feel like they're getting stagnant, we start to get a lot of warnings of of terrible things to come, and we've gotten quite a few of them uh, from <laughs> some pretty big investment managers that you know uh, the end is nigh and that markets are going to collapse and that you know we're going to have a, a real correction. Um, do you agree that there is something that's imminent and and sort of uh, bad that's percolating under the surface? And if so, where is where are we most at risk of seeing some kind of uh, problem? <laughs> oh, I think there is. I think that the, there's a big, huge thing uh, under the surface. I just don't know whether it's going to prove bullish or bearish for interest rates, and I don't know what it is. I mean, um, I, look, the economy, is it doesn't seem to be accelerating. It doesn't seem to be decelerating. We're dealing with sort of this muddling that we've dealt with for a very long time. The machinations out of Washington, the antics between the White House and the Congress, I mean, have, have, oh, I don't know if I want to use the term jump the shark, but I think finally the risk markets, the risk markets are, are losing their patience. So whether it's about some fiscal stimulus or whether it's about tax reform and we start putting that off into, um, into next year with the, you know, potential, um, of a default certainly over the debt ceiling, I think likely to, reside with us, you know, through October. Um, and then the question about what is, what is the balance sheet reduction going to look like? And I think all those things are going to put more stress on risk assets than on the Treasury market. So I would say that's where, um, that's where the risk is. I mean, valuations, of course, are high. Credit spreads, for example, are tight. Buybacks have slowed down. So that is where I think we're going to, we would feel it. Well, David, what are you recommending that clients do then? Oh, do what I, I cash under your mattress. Just you know, freeze dried food, cash, and, uh, and hunker down. <laughs> wait, wait, um, wait, 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 wait! <clears throat> Hold on a second. How much cash? And when did you start? And to how say, much freeze dried? And how much freeze dried food? <laughs> and and cans or uh, packages? No, uh, you know. It, but are you have you been recommending over the past few weeks that people build their cash uh, stashes, or is it over the past year? Or and and how much? No, and, and, and realistically, I think that from a, from a portfolio, from a fixed income, now we're talking on the fixed income side, um, I think I would, you know, retain uh, a fairly good front-end cash position. And then I would have a, a barbell portfolio with exposure at the long end again, because I don't think that we're seeing any inflation problems. So the barbell portfolio would allow me to, if we, for example, were to see a Fed hike or if we were to see opportunities, I want to, hunk, I want to have some cash on hand to take advantage of it um, in other asset classes. So I think that the barbell portfolio for now is the one I would like. And I think also um, you know, I don't think the Fed's going to hike this year, and I'm, you know, next year we'll get, an, I think we'll get a new Fed chairman. Presumably they'll be um, dovish. Trump likes low interest rates. And I, I, but I do think that there is still some risk that the front end is going to get um, a little bit nervous about the Fed as we approach next year and we get past the debt ceiling situation. So I think the barbell portfolio is the one that makes the most sense to me. And in terms of a, a duration exposure to a benchmark, I would be a little bit long duration now. Well, David, when do you throw in the towel? I mean, I want to know because, you know, you'll be the last bear standing. <laughs> when I throw in the towel. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in, the, in, these, in these coming weeks, in these coming months, 
you know, we will get, obviously, more information on inflation. The Fed has always talked about that, that, that or has been talking, that, you know, ultimately they'll reach their targets. I do not care about the dot plots. I don't really care about their, their own expectations. I want to see what the data is going to look like. You know, uh, David, I I have to wonder, you know, people lament that this market has been neutered either by financial regulation or by so many years of Federal Reserve uh, interference. But are we just seeing a market that's a normal, that's moving back to a model where people actually have to look at data and actually look at the companies and not just wait for uh, what comes out of the lips of central bankers? You know, I... You know, we always look at it, and if you're an economist or you're a strategist, you know, you, you historically and academically we rely on the data. But you know, we've we've had data up, we've had it down, and and the the treasury market generally the yields are staying in a range. So we will get back to it. We still need to look at those factors because it will impact central bank policy here and around the world. But um, the 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 quantitative easing that's still going on elsewhere, the continuing reinvestment, which the Fed is doing, even if they're going to begin tapering, I do think has put, um, you know, put restrictions on the volatility that you would otherwise be seeing in, in, in the fixed income markets. That slowly, gradually, glacially is coming off. So I don't see drama but I do think, you know, in a few years, we'll probably get ourselves back to a more normal environment. Having said that, I still think that, that there's a generational issue that interest rates are going to be lower than we might otherwise have seen <clears throat> just because we are in a, sort of a muddling growth mode. I want to thank you very much for joining us. David Adder is the chief macro strategist for Informa Financial Intelligence. He is also a Bloomberg prophet. Bloomberg prophets are professionals who offer actionable insights on markets, the economy, and monetary policy. And Bloomberg prophets may actually have a stake in the areas in which they write about. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.